Yeah. Uh, my name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. Uh, if you're newer, it's your first time, you're coming for a few times, just super glad you're here. Um, like Mike said, it's a really fun day to be at church. Every Sunday is a fun day to be at church, but not every Sunday do you have pizza and baptisms and celebrating community groups and spilling all the surprises right now. Later, we're gonna pray for um, a, an annual youth conference next week that all our youth group is gonna go to, or most of our youth group. Um, so we've kind of had this date, like, circling on the calendar for quite a while, um, not just from, like, the logistics side, but from, like, oh, man, this is gonna be an awesome day. Uh, so really glad you're here. Um, we get good pizza, by the way. I know some of you probably hear that immediately, and you're like, come on, man, like, church meal, and you're getting pizza? Like, bro, this is good pizza. You're gonna go downstairs. You're gonna look for a pizza box that has pizza bomb written on it, all right? And that's what you're gonna get. And you're gonna be like, wait, this is really good. So some of you really care about that and some of you are like, this is whatever. But because it's a very busy Sunday, um, we're just gonna kind of dive right in. So uh, John 6, one through 21, uh, we see Jesus in our passage that we just read. We see him performing two more miracles. Um, and if you've been with us for the past few weeks or really in the fall as well, uh, you know that this is not abnormal. Um, Jesus performs miracles all throughout the book of John. Um, and John kind of uses this phrase, sign, and he kind of uses them interchangeably. Um, and they're not only found in the Gospel of John, uh, they're also found in the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, but interestingly, very interestingly, outside of the resurrection, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only one that's found across all four. It's the only one. Uh, now, what does that mean? It can mean many things, but one thing, uh, it means that we have a fuller picture of kind of what happened, of what's going on. Uh, one of the most beautiful things that uh, I think you can actually do is when there's an event that kind of goes across all the Gospels or two or three of the Gospels is read them side by side. Um, and you get like a beautiful, fuller picture of what happened. You can look at the way that Matthew wrote it, the details he decided to include, the way that Mark wrote it, Luke wrote it, and John wrote it, and just kind of compare and get like a fuller picture. And so today we have some like extra material that we're working with, right? It's not just our passage that we're gonna look at, um, but we can include these other uh, recorded events, uh, record, uh, other gospel writers that recorded this event and see what they have to say. But one thing that was interesting to me, um, the only gospel that includes the little bit at the end, I don't know if you caught it, um, John only gives it a sentence where he, uh, the people declared that Jesus is the prophet to come into the world and they try to make him king. John is the only gospel to do that. The other three gospels don't do that at all. Uh, and I think one of the reasons why is that so far, John has focused a lot on the people's expectations of Jesus. Right? The people that have interacted with Jesus have come to him with certain expectations and certain motivations. Some of those motivations and expectations good and some of them bad. Some of them from a good place and some of them from a bad place. Some of them from genuinely good desires. Some of them from kind of selfish desires. But if we take a step back, Right, and look at these two miracles. Look at um, this passage. It's kind of one story as a whole in which uh, Jesus, he really exceeds and shatters the expectations of the people that are in front of him. Right, whether it's the thousands and thousands and thousands of people that he feeds or whether it's just the disciples in a boat, he shatters their expectations. Now, a personal note, I'm convinced that like, one of the most satisfying and exciting things in life is when you have expectations and those expectations are just absolutely blown out of the water. Right, whether it's expectations for pizza being a certain quality after church, and you go downstairs, and your expectations are blown out of the water. I hope they don't mess up these pizzas, man. I'm, good Lord. Right, or like you're going out to eat at a nice restaurant downtown. You, you have a certain level of expectations, or um, you're seeing your favorite band or artist live for the first time. You have like these expectations, or 
uh, a spouse or a family member or a roommate, you have expectations, and it's really sweet when those expectations are blown out of the water, when they're exceeded. And so it's kind of comforting then when we consider that the God of the universe shatters our expectations as well, every time. We see Jesus shatter the expectations of the people in this story, and he does the same for us in our lives. And so that's kind of our main takeaway for the day. Really simple. It's just this. Jesus shatters expectations. Jesus shatters your expectations, and I mean that in a good way. So the rest of the time, we're just going to look at three simple things from our passage in light of this idea. Three ways in which Jesus shatters expectations in your life and in this story. We'll look at uh, how Jesus shatters expectations by what Jesus did, by what it means, and by why it matters. What Jesus did, we're just going to kind of go back into the story and read through the text again and um, kind of pick up on some things that maybe we didn't realize the first time through. What it means, we're going to explain what these miracles mean. It's more than just Jesus kind of making bread and walking on water. It's more than just he's the OG David Blaine, right? There's something behind this going on. Some of you caught that. Lastly, why it matters. In other words, so what? So what? What does that have to do with me? What Jesus did, we'll look at the text, what it means, a little bit of theology behind it, why it matters, a little bit of application. What can I do with this? So first, what Jesus did. We'll break down both these miracles briefly. Um, The feeding of the 5,000. Look at verse four to start. It says this. Really quickly, it says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. So um, for a multitude of reasons, the crowd that was in front of Jesus was likely really hyped up. Right, it was, it was the Passover, which um, if you know your Bibles or if you've been coming to church, you've probably heard that this is a yearly celebration in which um, the Jewish people, the Israelites, God people, remember how God's brought them out of slavery from Egypt. Um, and so honestly, with this in mind, this gathering, like maybe we kind of picture it as like a little bit of like a solemn kind of service in which people are amazed by bread and things like that, which is very possible, but it might be more like a music festival. It's like people are really excited, right? There's expectations, It's the Passover, right? This is the once-a-year celebration. On top of this, practically speaking, this is probably a very hangry crowd. Our passage doesn't say this, but the other passages note that it's really late in the day. And the other passages note that the crowd's been there all day and that Jesus has actually been uh, teaching them and healing them and interacting with them all day, and now it's evening. And also, uh, you wouldn't pick up on this unless you are geographically very intelligent. That's a weird way to say that. Uh, but when they crossed the sea, they didn't go to some town, right? They went to kind of the sticks. It's the woods. It's the middle of nowhere. And so this is the setting, and Jesus asks Philip an interesting question. Uh, if you've been, again, tracking with us in John, Jesus asks really interesting questions. He really does. Sometimes they're funny. Sometimes they're sarcastic. Sometimes they're mind-boggling. But with that context in mind, Jesus turns and asks Philip, where are we to buy bread? so that these people may eat. Now remember where they are, right? This isn't too far off from me being into three hours into like a two-day hike in the White Mountains with my wife and I look at her and I say, where are we gonna get a good burger and a draft beer on our way up? Like when's that gonna happen? Like it doesn't exist. It's not there, right? It's, and on the one hand though, it makes sense for Jesus to ask Philip this question. Last week, or I think the week before, we learned that Philip was from that area And so it actually makes a lot of sense. It's like me asking you, if you're from a certain city that I'm going to visit, where should I eat in that city? But there's nothing around. No food trucks, right? There's no beer garden with light appetizers. Uber Eats is a $50 delivery fee, and it's a three-hour wait, right? Like, there's nothing there. And Philip, he's sensible, a sensible man. 
He says, not even 200 denarii worth of bread would feed these people. 200 denarii worth is about eight months of a wage. Right, very logical response, right? There's no place to buy food. And even if there was, there's not gonna be enough for everyone. Andrew, one of the other disciples, chimes in. There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? If you've grown up in church, you've been around church, you know the rest. Right, Jesus has the people sit down. He prays. And miraculously, enough bread and fish seem to appear out of thin air for all of these people. And again, John doesn't say it, but in the other gospels, we, we learn that they don't just have like a sufficient amount of food to get them through to the next meal. It says they all ate and were satisfied. I find it interesting here that Jesus, he doesn't use the logical response, but uses the almost silly one to shatter expectations. Right, like, I don't wanna speak for you, but if I'm in this situation, I'm gonna sound like Philip, not Andrew. Right, Jesus, how is this even, what, what do you expect us to do, man? Like, there's nothing we can do. Right, in some sense, the lesson is simple. God can do a lot with what little you have. We tend to take stock of what we have and think that's God's ceiling. We forget that God is in the business of multiplication. When it comes to our gifts, our talents, our passions, our influence, right? Where you bring a three, he makes a nine. Where you bring a seven, he makes a 49. Here's the hard truth. Thinking God can't use what you have says more about your view of God than yourself. God is just waiting out of love to shatter your expectations. Just like the expectations of the disciples are shattered here. Right, Jesus, we can't do anything. Even more than that, you can tell they don't quite grasp who Jesus is yet. Like they've seen him make water into wine. They've seen him heal sick people. Like maybe I'm just arrogant thinking that I would get it, but like, come on, you've seen him do these crazy things, but they don't get it, right? They say, well, Jesus, there's nothing we can do. Jesus, there's probably nothing you can do, right? Or maybe they're kind of sarcastic, I don't know. We can't retone into the text per se. Maybe they're like, oh yeah, Jesus, what are we gonna do? Like, I, you know, like maybe. The story goes on, it tells us the crowd wanted to make him king, called him the prophet to come. We'll get more into that later. And then he withdrew because of this to a mountain, which John doesn't say what he's doing, but we know the rest of the gospels, like when Jesus goes to a mountain, it's to be alone with God the Father and to pray. I imagine, again, I imagine, Jesus has a long day of healing people, teaching people, being compassionate and kind and loving, making bread out of thin air. What does he do? He goes and prays and he spends time with the Father. Then he performs the second miracle, walking on water. Right, the disciples after their meal, they go to the shore, they get into the boat, they start rowing and the wind picks up. All right, don't miss the dire circumstance of this either. Both symbolically and in reality, all across the scriptures, uh, oceans and seas are kind of a, a metaphor or a symbol for like complete chaos. Right, it's not a nice beach day with a pina colada. Unless you're one of those weird people that don't like the beach. You know who you are. And so Jesus comes to them in this situation by walking on water, like literally walking across the sea. Verse 19, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and they were frightened. 
What you find interesting, read closely, the disciples, it doesn't say they're frightened by the wind in the dire circumstance, which I think is probably safe to assume maybe they are. But it points out, it points out what? They're rather afraid of what Jesus is doing. They're frightened. In the other gospels, it says that they think this man's a ghost. It looks like a ghost coming across the water. Some theologians, some scholars kind of equate this moment to um, the way people are afraid when they come into the presence of the Lord throughout the Bible. The book of Isaiah, when Isaiah comes face to face with God, it says that he's undone because of God's holiness. Right? Or even Peter, earlier in the book of John, it talks about that um, he comes face to face with Jesus and he says, depart from me for I am a sinful man. There's a recognition of, of, of this, this, this being, this Jesus is something more. But Jesus makes this statement. He says, it is I, do not be, the, be afraid. He gets into the boat and immediately they're on the shore. So this is what Jesus does. One thing before we move on, let's talk about how exactly to deal with this. Right, for some of you, this is super easy to accept. Like, yeah, of course Jesus did this kind of stuff. Like, yeah, 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 Jesus defied the, the laws of physics and this and that, and he did these things, of course. But for others, it's really difficult. And actually, I've, I've talked to some people about this specifically Miracles in the Bible are your hang-up. They are a wall of sorts. And so I think it's important to remember what miracles are in light of being a follower of Jesus and sort of kind of having this Christian worldview. Um, so to talk about that for just a minute, uh, I remember uh, taking a seminary class in which a good part of the class was studying miracles, the miracles we see across the scriptures. And uh, initially, the, kind of the initial readings we had to do was about how various people define the miracles, and I was actually really surprised, like, the vast array of opinions about how to define it. Like, what exactly is a miracle and what's happening in this moment? From theologians, the, theologians, theologians, pastors, scholars, scientists. But the one that was most gripping to me was a line that Tim Keller had. And no, it's not just because he's Tim Keller, okay? But he says this about Jesus' miracles. He says, Christ's miracles were not the suspension of the natural order, but the restoration of the natural order. They are a reminder of what once was prior to the fall and a preview of what will eventually be a universal reality once again, a world of peace and justice without death, disease, or conflict. And I think it's kind of beautiful because, you know, science apart from faith would say something along the lines of miracles are a breaking of the natural law. And in some sense, that is true. Right, but what Keller is saying, he's sort of reframing the way we view these miracles, not as the breaking of something, but as the restoring of something, almost as a window into what will be and into what once was before humanity broke their relationship with God, of the way it should be. When you consider Jesus' miracles, what do you see? You see miracles of compassion, of justice and order. Right? Miracles of defeating death. Of the way it should be before humanity, us, broke our relationship with God. It's not just the reminder that Jesus is all-powerful and Jesus is God in the flesh. It's also a reminder of what will be. And we have to remember that all these miracles are done so that we may believe that Jesus, Jesus is the Christ. Remember John's purpose statement the whole book in chapter 20. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What's interesting too is that these miracles, 
They aren't confined to just the New Testament. They aren't confined to just John's gospel, right? Miracles have been happening for thousands of years throughout the scriptures, and miracles happened for hundreds of years beyond Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. Right? People all over the Old Testament have done miracles. People all across the New Testament besides Jesus have also done miracles. But here's the difference. Right? In other parts of scripture, with other people, God does miracles through them. Whereas Jesus comes on scene and he says, I do these things. And so these miracles, as John tells us, are meant to point us to Christ as the son of God. And if Jesus uses these miracles to show us who he is and saying that through them, that God isn't just working through me, but I am God, then the Bible doesn't actually allow us to not accept these miracles at face value, but then accept Jesus's gospel at face value. What do I mean by that? The gospel is the gospel, not just because of what Jesus did, but because of who Jesus is. And these miracles are telling us who Jesus is. Right, to pick and choose from the Bible and say, I'm not gonna believe these because they're unbelievable is to not believe in the full Jesus we see in the scriptures. Is to not believe in the way that Jesus describes and presents himself. Right, and so maybe, you know, we're talking about shattering expectations. Maybe this is one that God wants to work in your heart and, and do is maybe this Jesus is capable. Maybe he is more than just a man. So this is what Jesus did. Secondly, let's talk about what it means. Jesus and John, John the author of this passage, he's making a very specific claim. We've already said it two or three times, right? But he's pointing to something very specific about Jesus through these miracles. Yes, it is that he is powerful and can create bread and feed thousands with so little. And yes, it is that he can walk across water. Yes, it is ultimately that this is the all-powerful God in the flesh. That is, yes, ultimately it. But to be honest, much more poetic, beautiful, stirring, and inspiring when you know the backstory, right, of God's people in the Old Testament, right? If you know your Old Testament fairly well, these miracles might kind of ring a bell, might kind of look familiar, all right, you have to go back about 1,500 years to the book of Exodus. A key figure, figure, a key leader in this book, Moses, not to spend too long on this point, but something really cool here, really beautiful that shows that, that God is, quite frankly, a poet. He's weaving together a beautiful story of redemption through the scriptures, and he continues to weave a beautiful story of redemption through your life. Already talked about it a little bit, but the Passover, right, it happened in the book of Exodus, Exodus 12. And so the people would probably have that on their minds in the crowd. In the same book, just a few chapters later, we see God doing some sort of similar miracle to the one we see Jesus do. Right, Exodus 16, the Israelites find themselves in a similar situation. They're definitely hungry. They're complaining to Moses. They literally use this phrase. I read this this week and kind of laughed. Uh, they say to Moses, you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. The next time my wife tells me we have food at home and we can't eat out. <laughs> you have brought me into this wilderness to kill me with hunger. So they're hangry, just like Jesus' crowd. And God does something spectacular. He causes bread, he causes manna to rain down from the sky to feed the Israelites. Just as God gives manna in the Old Testament, Jesus now gives bread in the New Testament. There's a claim here. There's a connection. There's an equality being drawn. 
And Jesus, he goes more into what that means actually next week. We'll hear about that next week. He actually teaches on this idea. But with the Passover at hand, the people in front of Jesus would have immediately thought of this miracle as well, especially when they see the bread appear out of thin air. In the wilderness. There's a very direct connection to what God was doing in the Old Testament to God, what God is now doing in our passage. The second sort of connection, the second meaning of Jesus walking on the water, we can also draw from the book of Exodus. Remember the Israelites, they celebrate escaping Egypt, right? God delivering them out of slavery from Egypt. Um, after all these plagues, plagues, and it's a really uh, fun, an entertaining, fun story, um, and, and they escape, and uh, if you remember, Egypt starts pursuing them, right, with chariots and an army, and they encircle them, and they kind of pin them by this body of water called the Red Sea. And Moses, uh, he, he encourages them with this phrase. He encourages God's people with this phrase verbatim. He says this. He says, fear not, see the salvation of the Lord. And now Jesus, in a somewhat similar scenario, near a body of water, these people in a desperate situation comes to them and encourages them with this phrase, it is I, do not be afraid. Except now, instead of God, through Moses parting the water, God himself walks across it. And now to be clear, what Jesus is not saying here is don't be afraid, it's your boy, I'm not a stranger. Someone thought that was funny, come on, like. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, but actually the English doesn't, translate from the Greek one-to-one -one here, right? Jesus uses this phrase, this Greek phrase, ego eimi, I am. Which Jesus says this multiple more, time, multiple more times throughout the book of John. We'll dive into one of them next week. I think it's the first one next week. I am the bread of life. But in each one, he's claiming to be God because God himself uses that phrase verbatim with Moses in the Old Testament. And Moses himself in Deuteronomy 18 talks about Jesus. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And remember in verse 14 in our passage, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. So they make some connection, right? I feel like John and, and the way Jesus interacts with people, they always halfway get it, or like kind of get it, right? They have a slight understanding of who he is. We'll see next week that they, it, it's not in the way that they expect so Jesus, he's not just another Moses. He's not just a slightly better Moses. He's a far greater Moses and a far different Moses. In summary, what do these miracles mean? Many things, but most importantly, Jesus is God. Remember, this is John's whole point for writing his gospel. Highlighting these signs as he writes this book so that you may believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that you may believe that Jesus is God. Now, lastly, why does this matter? We'll talk through this and we'll close. Why does it matter? Why do I care? You know, even if this did happen, what does this mean for me in my life? Three takeaways, three things I want you to consider, three sort of things to apply to your life. First, Jesus' care and tangible provision for you. Second, Jesus' kingship over you. Third, Jesus' presence with you. I'm gonna say those again because I didn't make a slide. First, Jesus' care and tangible provision for you. Second, Jesus' kingship over you. Third, 
Jesus's presence with you. Jesus' care and tangible provision for you. This is where the uh, other gospels provide a little more color. Right? They tell us that when Jesus is on the scene and he sees the crowds, it uses the word compassion. It says he has compassion on the crowds, that they're like sheep without a shepherd. They need someone to love, care, lead, guide, feed. But John doesn't say this, right? But the other gospels, we know that Jesus spends all day with them. Great compassion. I think it's sometimes easy for us to forget when we read a story like this that this is his same disposition towards you today. Right? Jesus, God, greatly cares for you, has great compassion for you. He sees your every need, whether it's hunger or something deeper. Right? Sometimes he won't make bread up here out of thin air. He'll ask something of you first. Right? He might ask for the only five loaves of bread you have. Why? Because he wants to do far more with your five loaves than you ever could. One thing we see in the story, this could have been its own sermon, is that small steps of faith lead to big acts of God. Five small loaves of bread, two fish, led to thousands and thousands and thousands. Which, side note, we didn't, the, the text isn't clear on this, it's 5,000 men. They use that as a way to count families. So it's likely more like 10 or 15,000. God uses five loaves of bread and two fish to feed 15,000 people. And more than this, and we've been talking about this, that the miracle is meant to point to the miracle giver. That maybe some of these 15,000 saw through that to something greater, to more than just bread that's in front of them, to the person that was behind it. And so, yes, God is so big. He can do these miracles. He can create and sustain the universe. But don't forget he cares for you. The life of Christ is for you. The perfect life he lived was for you. The death he died was for you. The resurrection was for you. Not just so you could go and live your life, but so that you could be in the presence of God and experience his goodness. And just like the people that day, eat and be satisfied with God. That's Jesus' care and tangible provision. The second thing we see is Jesus' kingship over you. The crowd wanted to uh, crown Jesus because of what he could do for them, not because of who Jesus was. Again, I've said this many times, they only halfway understood who he was. We'll see this next week with crystal clarity. Here's the thing. You want Jesus to be king of your life, you have to fully accept him because he wants to be part of your life fully. Jesus does not accept partial authority. Jesus does not accept partial surrender. Jesus wants us to know him and understand him and love him and trust him as much as we can. And to have him as king of our lives because of who he is, not just because of what he can do for us or some ulterior motive. Right, a good question to think about if you're a Christian is why is Jesus the king of your life? Because you were told the Bible is true? That's a good thing. Because the worship makes you feel a certain way? Because you have good friends here? All, right, all these are good things, but they're not enough to make Jesus the king of your life. Jesus needs to be the king of your life because you have interacted with the Jesus of the Bible and seen him for who he is and found him worthy. Because he is worthy. 
Jesus's kingship over you. Lastly, Jesus's presence with you. This is probably my favorite part of the story. Notice a few things with Jesus and the disciples on the boat. The scenario is dire. Right, we're entirely, we're entirely sure, but maybe their lives are in danger. But what solves the problem was not a change in circumstance, but rather the presence of God. Right, we talked about this some already, but look at the reason Jesus tells them not to be afraid. He didn't say, don't be afraid. I'm gonna get you through this or I'm gonna take you out of this or I'm gonna change this or that. No, what does he say? He comes to them in a dark moment and says, it's me, I am. Tim Keller says, Jesus Christ will never minimize the storm. What he'll do instead is maximize himself. Jesus will never minimize the storm. What he'll do instead is maximize himself. It's not too far off from the baby or the toddler who falls and hurts themselves greatly and you could have the best nurse or doctor in front of you that knows exactly what they need physically to heal. Yet, what's the thing they need the most and the thing that will ultimately solve the situation the most? Usually it's the presence of the parent. That's all they want. I see this every day. My daughter's too. She's falling all the time. If she falls, what does she ask for? Mommy uppy. Like, <laughs> they might not have realized it, but what the disciples needed more than the calming of a storm was the presence of God. The calming presence, or in other words, a relationship with Jesus is what aided the disciples. Dallas Willard says there's no problem in human life that apprenticeship to Jesus does not solve. And so you walk in here. We all walk in here with our own problems, our own circumstances, our own areas we're lacking, our own areas where we think we only have five loaves and two fish, your own dire storms. And you want answers and you want solutions to these, but realize before God wants to fix your life, he just wants to be with you. And he wants you to just be with him. If you start that, this is kind of indescribable. It's really weird. You kind of have to experience it. But if you start that, if you do that, your circumstances might not change. The storm might still rage on, but if you focus on him, things will in a way seem to get better. Not because things have tangibly changed, but because you're communing with God. Because you're soaking in the presence of Jesus who made you who loves you, who lived for you, who died for you, who rose from the dead for you, who invites you into a relationship with himself, into, the, with, into a relationship with the living God. He shatters your expectations every time. As you then begin to realize his presence and a relationship with him is far better than a change in circumstance. He shatters your expectations. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful, thankful for you. Jesus, I am thankful for how you shatter expectations in our passage and how you shatter expectations in our own lives. God, may we look to you continuously. May we feel your care and your provision. May we submit to your kingship. May we lean into your presence. Lord, we trust you, we love you. In your name we pray and ask these things, amen.